0: So let me um, go ahead and introduce our speaker. Julie Larson has a background in education, writing and meditation leadership Um, through her experience with type one for over five decades um, combined with her intense focus on personal thought observation. um, She's learned that state of mind is high on the list for good control. Um, Thus Julie has developed some helpful tools for psychosocial and emotional care that assist those who have had type one to shift Um, this often frequent feelings of general hopelessness and powerlessness to that of greater wisdom, opportunity, and well-being. Um, With a little extra thinking about one's own thinking, Julie believes that you too can um, take your habitual angst about being a person with diabetes um, and flip it into a more satisfying place of personal empowerment. So I'm going to go ahead and hand the session over to Julie and just walk in the background, Julie. Thank you for coming to speak to us today.
1: You are very welcome. Can you hear me Okay. Sounds good. Wonderful. Well, um, I'm delighted to be here and have so many people who are interested in claiming their power via the ideas that I have to present. And I'm going to start um, with a short story. When I was nine years old, there was a program on TV which was likely the precursor to the current Grey's Anatomy. It was called Dr. Ben Casey, and it was my mother's favorite show. Three weeks after they aired an episode about a child diagnosed with diabetes, I started showing the same symptoms and was thus taken to see the family doctor who declared to my mother that I would have to go on insulin and I would be lucky to live to the age of 20. I vividly recall sitting beside her in that gray office as she burst into tears, while inside my head declaring a very strong intention to prove that man wrong. And sure enough, I'm still here. It is quite remarkable that when one puts their thoughts towards a goal which is backed up by strong emotion and resolve, that they can be extremely successful. I'm sure everyone here can give an example of how that kind of thought power can create a desired outcome. However, when it involves dealing with the often repetitious and frustrating self-care of diabetes, that power seems to disappear. When I attended the July huddle on the topic of burnout and resilience, what I noticed throughout those important sharings was a deep underlying sense of powerlessness in living with diabetes. My heart went out to those who appeared to feel helpless and confused about their life with T1D. So, tonight, I intend to offer a fresh perspective on how your thoughts and emotions can affect your personal well being and even your relationships. In order for this to work effectively though, you have to want to feel good. You will need fresh resolve to think about your thinking and strengthen that underdeveloped muscle of thought in order to feel better about your life with diabetes. For fun, let's begin with an experiment. I'd like you to get really comfortable in your chair,
2: close your eyes for a few moments, and simply relax while you focus on breathing consciously. In and out. In and out. In and out. out. Now, simply notice the first thought that pops into your head and notice how it feels. Is it a positive or a negative thought? Does it feel
1: good? Or perhaps it is a judgment that nothing will ever change your feelings about being diabetic, despite noticing what you are thinking. Now come back, open your eyes, and pat yourself on the back because you actually noticed Your thoughts. Most of the time, we don't pay attention simply because we're in a habitual mode of just noticing what is in front of us. Are you familiar with Einstein's definition of insanity? It is when you continue to do the same thing over and over and over again and expect a different result. As diabetics tired of the physical upkeep, we do the same thing over and over, even when it is not creating the kind of results we want. So here are some strategies to put the spark back into your thoughts and eliminating the boring reruns of type one diabetes. Consider that thoughts and emotions carry huge power. How many thoughts do you think in
2: any given day? Any guesses? I looked it up on the internet and it states that the experts say anywhere from 6,000
1: to 60,000 thoughts run through your head in any given day. And do you know that your thoughts actually determine what you are feeling on an emotional level. This is why it is so important to be aware of what you are thinking. What was your first thought this morning? Was it one resulting from a low or a high blood sugar? For example, did you wake up thinking, I hate being diabetic. I have no idea why this happened. Or was it more like, okay, I'll figure out what caused the high or low after I treat it. I'm just glad to be alive. Your current thoughts always affect what happens next. Once you have recovered from your low or your high, you can choose to calmly ponder what may have caused it. And that knowledge will contribute to further prevention. If you take time to sit in a quiet place and give yourself a few minutes to relax and breathe, you will be surprised at the easy answers that will pop into your head. Oh yeah, I ate a cup of peanuts last night without a bolus, and then I overcorrected at 3 a.m. Or as you're sitting there silently, you might be thinking, I went to bed mad last night and I could have been a lot easier on my partner. And that kind of thought awareness can be pivotal. It is prevention at its best because our emotions, especially the stubborn kind, can actually contribute to our mysterious unexplained highs. Ponder confusion versus clarity. If you are all balled up in your anger and frustration, you cannot tune in to receive the insight That is available to you from your place of calm. Honing your thought focus from misery to mindfulness will make a big difference in how you feel as you get on with your day. You are never as effective in your discomfort as you are in your enthusiasm or your joy. This understanding gives you power to confidently respond to your emotions in a way that feel more like the real you. The true nature of your being is happiness. The challenge, better said yet, the opportunities that T1D brings give you an added advantage over others in both knowing and trusting the skills you have developed in your diabetes care. And these solutions will eventually transfer into all other areas of your life. Diabetics have experience above and beyond the line of regular life duty. When were you last recognized for your multifaceted thought practices? Diabetics have to think a lot more than non diabetics to get through their day. They not only have to live their life like everyone else, with family work and responsibilities to juggle but on top of that they have to develop skills for maintaining their digestive health. Nothing they eat can be taken for granted and sometimes T1 deers forget that they are constantly processing multi-level choices and get overwhelmed by it all especially when family is added to the picture. And this takes us to our primary relationships, those wonderful button pushers in our life. In the July huddle, someone gave the examples of her partner accusing her of being angry when her blood sugars were high. This infuriated her. She got angrier and that most likely contributed further to her high glucose. Defensiveness is an important response to pay attention to because it indicates an emotional nerve has been hit. The anger she had directed at him was actually anger with herself for not having better control and or willpower. When you get clear on your own feelings, you no longer need to blame others. It's not easy to do in a high glucose moment, but with time to think, a great conversation could follow. Something like, I was angry because you were right. A high blood sugar is awful. I don't feel like myself at all and I lash out. When I can't think, it would help if you supported me in correcting that high. And then, Present a list of the steps to take that your partner can assist you with. So I'm suggesting here that you keep a personal list handy. For example, ask your partner to help you, especially when you are got the fog going on in your head, to assist you with a finger poke or a pod check or a scan or um, check for an insulin leakage, bleeding, bruising and if everything's okay, to take an appropriate bolus. And also, um, at least in my case, I always suggest if your blood glucose is over 15, take a designated amount of units of fast-acting insulin manually to start working as I take time to replace my pod. It all just takes a long time to absorb when you've got a new pod going. So it's important that you include all your specific instructions to your helper it's worth the time it takes to write that out in this way you are prepared for the you are prepared for those brain fog occasions your partner feels useful and you may even feel appreciated or you may even feel appreciation for them by doing this you become an active responder and are well on your way to becoming A conscious uplifter to yourself and to others. It does take practice and a willingness to add more joy to your life via the diabetic experience. Another good example was the woman from the July huddle who told her story of caregiving a parent with dementia, who was very, very critical of her She felt powerless to do anything right in the eyes of her mother. This daughter's lack of personal objectivity to change the scenario was likely the result of years of self-judgment, which created her current feelings of being without power or freedom. Because she was stuck in a belief that she had no choices in her diabetic world, she unintentionally transferred that sense of helplessness into her role as daughter. This can happen easily, even if we are not aware of how our personal power has been affected. We always have choice in how we think and respond to blood scans and to people. Her solution might have been to reach out to the network of home caregivers to obtain strategies for relief. If you do not take care of yourself first, you will become unable to care for others effectively. This applies to all of us, diabetic or not. When you do not feel in control of all aspects of your life, it is easy to take others' comments or behaviors personally, even when they have no intention to push your buttons. I vividly recall at the age of 39, when this principle became very clear to me, after a very challenging day with roller coasting blood sugars. That night, as I lay in bed, I focused my anger at my pancreas for not supporting or respecting me. I even considered asking my doctor to surgically remove it because I didn't want to be weighted down was something that wasn't of any use to me. Pretty extreme thinking. Then my fatigue set in and I relaxed those crazy thoughts, focused on my breathing and let the pure calm of clarity flood in. I recognized that my real anger was about not being honored or respected in my current relationship And then the Eureka happened. I realized I was not honoring or respecting myself and that he was just mirroring my own behavior. I'd been focusing much too hard on fixing a dysfunctional relationship rather than paying attention to my own self-care, physically and emotionally. Needless to say, I freed myself from that burden And in my new relaxed state of mind, my blood sugars soon stabilized. When you are easy with yourself, your body is easy with you. So the takeaway here is, when people around you are critical or hard on you in some way, don't take it personally. Instead, use it to remind you that they are mimicking a seed of frustration that you have planted within yourself and are ready to weed
2: out. This kind of self-awareness changes everything. Have you ever
1: in a state of frustration screamed out, I hate being diabetic. I am so frustrated with my lack of freedom. I'm sure a few of you have. Expressing your anger in the moment is healthy and feels powerful. It feels like relief and release, but the anger and relief are only temporary forms of thought power and the benefits don't last long. So consider these thought options. If you are thinking, I have been diabetic for a long time and I simply hate it, it is helpful to upgrade little by little you're thinking about that state of mind. For example, a next line you could say is, diabetes takes time, but I always figure out how to get my sugar back under control. Sometimes it takes a while before I feel like myself again, but I eventually do. I really enjoy being alive and for the most part, I am grateful for my health. There are so many things to look forward to and they always feel better when I am confident rather than feeling hopeless about T1D. I've learned some pretty powerful skills from my T1D experience that I can translate into other areas of my life. It feels good to be able to cope well in a world of challenges that I mostly see as opportunities now. Isn't that what the Survivor Series is all about? I get what this is all about. I really do enjoy a good challenge. Now, there's a big difference between that first thought of I hate being diabetic and I get this, I know how to
2: take care of myself. So in summary, I would like to suggest a few ideas.
1: Feel for the relief. Find more moments of appreciation that will give you a glimpse of who you truly are. Reduce your complaints. Give your brain some new stuff to think about. Imagine. Daydream. Sleep more. Listen to music. Quieten your mind. Slow negative thoughts. Deactivate your worry because the true nature of your being is peace, joy, love, and fun. You do not need to have perfect blood sugars to feel good. Feel good first. Consciously give yourself the freedom to feel as good as you mean to feel. Here's a quote from Wayne Dyer. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. T1D is not contagious, but attitude certainly is. Consider who is watching how you live your life. Your children, perhaps? Your friends? Your partner? Who are you influencing with your current behavior? Is anyone confused by you or avoiding you in your frustration or anger? What truly matters to you? Misery or and complaint or a focus on well-being for all. Your new mindfulness is guaranteed to positively affect everyone in your household. Disempowerment is more of a disability than any physical illness. Remember that you are fine where you are and ready to move forward. And when you feel stress moving in, stop, breathe and relax to feel new clarity and power sweep through you as you take control. So is this just a pep talk or an essential life skill to wrap your thoughts around. Why not choose to be an influencer for others and an uplifter to self, simply because it feels good? Notice how when things go smoothly, they continue to go smoothly. Feel good and trust your expertise. Make things as easy as you can, Develop your strength in being solution-oriented. Transfer those T1D skills to everything in your life. Appreciate the little things. Be delighted with one day of good control or a three-day stretch where you don't have to change a pod or a sensor. Your power to be happy is crucial to your well-being. As you tweak your way of seeing life with type 1 diabetes and make yourself the reason to get back to the real you, you can toss the confusing resentments about the illness and become the powerful thought influencer that you were meant to be. So that's my basic message. And I have four points of um, importance I can go on with, but
2: perhaps you've listened to enough and you would like to make comment. Any thoughts? Trisha? advice,
0: please. Sure. I mean, Julie, why don't you, um, you know, can you talk about, you know, you've come to a place and every time I hear you, it's so calming. <laughs> like it, it Really, I think my blood pressure goes down five points every time you talk. But can you, can you share, um, you know, a time when things were really rough for you, you know, and, and, and why you looked to meditation, like, you know, what, what triggered you to really think, you know what, I got to make changes because things are, I'm not coping the way I want to cope. Certainly. Yeah. And Um, I'd love after Julie talks, I'd love to hear other people's worst time just because I think that those are, the, those are the situations in life that make us try to make changes. That
1: is for absolute certain. Um, I think, you know, because I've been diabetic for so long, I can't remember not being diabetic. It just becomes a matter of life. It's a matter of fact. It's a way of being. So initially, once I got married and had children, pregnancies were quite difficult. And, you know, that really motivated me to have tighter control. But at that point, we didn't even have a finger poke method to test. It was going to the hospital laboratory once a month. So it was hard to get a good read on how well I was. But in I think it was 1981, the first um, finger poke mechanism came out and that changed everything for me. But then I became um, overzealous and of course was poking my fingers way too often. So you can go from one extreme to the other um, quite quickly without even realizing you're doing that because you just want to feel good. So, um, you know, I was in the teaching business, I I got an insulin pump, and I wore that to school. And I was teaching teachers about how to deal with their diabetics in the school system. And that was all going really well until about 1995. That was my crucial awakening, I suppose you would say, where things got so bad that I had to take time off from teaching. And a friend of mine suggested that I focus on meditation because my body was not um, in very good shape. My nervous system was breaking down. I was really, really sick. So I slowly learned how to meditate. And over time, I found that I couldn't start a day without this quiet time, just to center myself, to clear my thoughts and to allow the clarity to come in. And I found that answers would pop in instantly to the questions I'd been pondering the day before or that night. It was, it was really quite amazing. So I'm not sure if that happens for everybody who takes up um, a thought awareness practice or meditation, but the more you do it, the more clarity comes to you and your questions get answered. And I can't explain it beyond that except so you're tapping into a higher intelligence that's willing to communicate with you and give you clarity. But that doesn't happen when you're in a buzz of busyness. You have to be in a quiet place, turn the phones off, make sure the dogs are, you know, not barking and just relax and focus on clearing your thoughts, which isn't always easy to do. But the more you relax, the more um, calm you become. And it's that calm sense that allows you to, Bring in the information that will be really helpful in your diabetes questions.
2: Yeah.
0: Does anyone else have something, a story they'd like to share when things were really, really rough or something happened in your life that kind of scared you to want to start thinking about it? it doesn't have to be changing your management and overhaul, but just thinking more about just everyday decisions you make about management or your health or anything.
2: It usually takes something extreme, like a death in the family or a relationship breakup or
1: more physical illness. It takes something extreme to motivate you to learn a different way of thinking. And then once you learn that new way of thinking, then you find your symptoms relax, or
2: the stress leaves you, or things just fall into place more readily. Denise, I just
0: saw you raise your hand.
3: I just just had this sort of momentary thought, maybe this fits, maybe it doesn't for others, but I've been reading and saving this quote that um, said, be careful what you say, you might be listening, meaning <laughs> yourself, obviously. And I think it's sort of fitting in with what Julie's saying about being that directing your thoughts. It's hard to do, but that quote has been something I haven't posted. It just I think that it's um important. Kind of what you're saying. Could you say it again, Denise? Be careful what you say. You might be listening. Thank you. Be, you know, like, what, be careful what you say. Be careful what you think. The thoughts your, your self talk is what it's about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes,
3: and you might, you you might be listening. Yeah, I,
4: I'm going Jerry? to. I'm going to chime in. So, in 2000, I saw my sister in 1999, and. She came to my daughter's bat mitzvah, and in 2000, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer, probably, and died 11 days later. And it it was a very sad time, but it just kind of changed our whole everything. It was that you live for exactly today. Today was the last day. By this time, we'd already had a child with type 1. And my brother had had cancer and you know, there's only three of us. So um, it was a small group. And I just decided that I wasn't going to worry about it. I was going to be full force ahead. And, you know, sometimes you come to a fork and have to choose one or the other. Doesn't mean the one path or the other is easier. Usually they're both really hard. But.
2: You have to decide and make a conscious decision. Being conscious of your thoughts is the biggest point I was
1: hoping to make. So, Jerry, you bring that forward very clearly. Conscious decisions are you being aware of your thoughts, not just letting them, you know, float by and not paying attention. Every thought has an energy. So you might as well pick the good ones. And if it means not worrying, that's huge. Because worrying is actually directing your attention to the very thing that you do not want to have happen. So why would you focus on that rather than change your thought into something like, oh, I'm sure this is gonna work out just fine. Often as mothers, especially, we'll worry about our kids when they're not home, on time or if they're if they have diabetes and their blood sugar is a mess it's so much more productive to send a positive thought about you'll get the hang of this or you'll be home you know just a few minutes from now I'm just thinking about you um you know Doing your best to arrive when you said you were going to arrive, rather than imagine them, you know, in a ditch with a bike broken. You know, I mean, we go these strange places that we don't always think about what we're thinking. So that's what I'm really advocating is notice what you're thinking, and if it's not on a positive vein, flip it into a positive,
2: and you'll start to feel calmer and more relaxed, and your blood pressure usually goes down too. Other examples from the group.
5: Ella? Hi, yeah. Um, My grandfather passed away a few months ago. Um, I've been a type one diabetic since I was 12. Uh, I'm 16 now. But um, it was a really, really rough time for all of my family. He was my father's dad. and. It was, he lived with us for a while and it was, it was just, it was really, really difficult to wake up in the morning and know that he was gone. And I kind of let my blood sugar go. I was in a really, really bad place up here um, and I wasn't paying attention and it was difficult for me to get, it it was almost a lack of motivation. Mm -hmm. Um, that kind of prevented me from making sure that my blood sugar was still in check and it it wasn't a kind of inside myself thing that got me back out of it it was you know he wouldn't have wanted me to let myself go like that because he's not here anymore he he wouldn't have he wouldn't have wanted that it wouldn't you know if he was still with us it would it would make him really sad to see me let myself go like that because of something that I couldn't control. Um, And yeah, it it took me a while to kind of pick myself up out of that. But my management over my sugars has been arguably a little bit better since that period of like not doing anything about it. I'd ride 15, 16, 17 for hours because I just, I couldn't, I wasn't paying attention um yeah it was a weird experience having that death be the reason that I wasn't paying attention but then also the reason that I got back into it almost yes yeah makes
2: sense thank you for sharing that that's big and that makes um
1: such a difference to know that Even though we go off the wagon for a little while, that in itself is a teaching tool because when you get back on, you feel so much better. And then when your mind is clear, you feel support from all levels. In fact, from someone who has has even passed, you can feel it. I don't know how to even explain that, but you know that they're cheering you on and that they feel better when you feel better. Much nicer to get a big hug from that person, but
2: you know, it's not always possible. But good for you, Ella. Rick has something. Yeah,
6: uh, I'm pretty new to this journey myself. And uh, so I got a little bit older in life. So it's what are we, six months or something on that. Uh, so very new. I uh, appreciate what you have to say, because, uh, uh, you know, just recently my wife uh, said to me, you seem so ornery about your blood sugars all the time. And I uh, I took that personally, actually, and it kind of upset me a little bit. Uh, but uh, <laughs> now I'm thinking, OK, that's something because I'm wrestling with that myself. Uh, it's more my own problem than somebody else's
2: right so have you done anything to think that through
6: well now right. i would <laughs> now i know uh, so i appreciate what you had to say here
2: you're so welcome
0: you know i think often family members really um are trying to help. Um, I, I, you know, most of you know that I talk with so many people with type one, and I have for years. And I remember a gentleman saying to me um, he wanted to talk and, and seek counseling because um, his partner. Um, had noted and, and tried to be really graceful about it that, you know, that um, he would really lash out and get angry when his, um, and she would, and it would always be when his blood sugars were high and he would get a little um, defensive about when she, you know, had said that and when he stopped and think, thought about it, he, he was thinking, you know, it's true and I need to, um, and that is why he ended up seeking counseling because he needed to figure out how to, um, how to uh, control what was going on and, 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 you know, what he was feeling. Um, it wasn't, you know, um, his partner's fault and, and, you know, his kid's fault. Like he just didn't, he felt bad that he was lashing out and it was, um, over and it was because his, when his blood sugars were high, he just wasn't feeling great. Um, but I think the fact that you, and you just said that, um, I think recognition is the first step. And then the people around you love you. Um, and they just, Want to figure out how they can, what they can do to help you figure out what's going to make you feel better.
1: Very good point, Tricia. Goes back to my suggestion that you make a list of how your significant other can be of assistance with with you getting back into a, a more normal blood sugar. And maybe the first thing on the list should be don't take my behavior personally. I'm not myself, and then let's go through the steps and, you know, just assist me in getting back to where I need to be, where I am more myself. And having that awareness spoken out loud, don't take it personally, is huge, because often people will blame themselves when their partner is upset about something that has nothing to do with them, and then the communication just goes, you know, out the window. So, That's a really, really significant point. When you live with a diabetic or you are a diabetic, let your people know that your mood will change as your blood sugar elevates. So it's a good sign to look for. But, you know, you don't want to use it as an attack point. You want to be gently
2: um, assisting your partner to recognize it and then treat it. I
1: don't know if that's on the list of to-dos in any diabetes books, but to me, that's really important.
0: Janet, I see your hand
7: raised. Uh, Yes, and also uh, people who, when your blood sugars drop, and I have always, from being a diabetic for the length of time I have over 50 years, I get very very crabby and very ornery with low blood sugar and Mm -hmm. mine would drop very quickly uh, without a lot of warnings and so i found that um as you say Judy, just um communicating with people about what it is and um and when my husband would say to me um something about your blood sugar is low my first answer was always no it's not and you know Mm -hmm. that was no it's not and so he i finally said maybe it would be helpful if you just said I think you should check your blood sugar. And mm-hmm. uh, and then every time he would say it, uh, I would go check my blood sugar and be thinking to myself, oh, he's always right. Like, yeah. and it's always right, but that helped. But uh, I think also having um, had a doctor just communicating with people about what you go through and what it's like as a teaching tool to them so they do understand because um, I had many friends even before blood testing machines were around and uh, would say like you were just you're just like a different personality when your blood sugar is I didn't know what to do or um, I knew you were ha- I knew something was going on because I was not like you at all and um, even some nurses at a hospital once said to me uh, it was when I was having some really unstable blood sugars with the pregnancy and um, they, they said I would like to take a video of you because you are like a stubborn two-year-old. And uh, (laughs) so just those and just communicating so that people around know and they know what to do. I used to always tell friends around, you know, this is if my blood sugar is dropping, this is what I like. I used to tell my classes too when I was teaching and the kids would all be watching and especially if I got crabby at all. (laughs) So it was (laughs) just to have that around and be able to communicate so that, you know, and I did have a doctor once who, um, who she was very good at training you to look at what your blood sugars were doing and how could you, how could, what, what do you think you should do? And then she would go through like, well, yes, I would do that. Or no, I wouldn't for the different reasons. So her whole purpose was training you to manage it yourself. And I think that was a real changing point for me, um, with the with the management of the diabetes, just to have better control, and I, I would say for the time before we had blood testing machines, it was just so difficult to keep your blood sugars under control when you didn't have that, and um, and yes, and Jerry, the ones that I had went, in 1980, they were checked against the lab, and they were they were fairly accurate but the first ones were quite big and then they got smaller but that was because I was I didn't have one in my first pregnancy and I did lose a baby and and then the next pregnancy uh, and John was born in 81 so I had a blood testing machine and that made just a huge huge difference when you when you feel like you do I think before that with the urine tests, it was just you, what your budget was yes. two two hours mm-hmm. ago and it was just that you did feel out of control with your management and so I think some of those things helped too and just thinking the positive thoughts that I can and like you Julie, I had a doctor who once when I was 18 told me that I would um I should never get pregnant mm-hmm. as a type one diabetic so so and then I thought well what does he really know? So so those kind of thoughts, but the, having those positive thoughts are, is quite helpful. And um, yeah. And just teaching the people around you because it is because they need to understand too, and understand ways that maybe won't be as ornery. My husband was always very patient, but he would tell me, you know, exactly what I was like when I had some of those low blood sugar episodes, I actually bit him once. So that's how (laughs) ornery I get. So. (laughs)
4: I think a discussion on, you know, if I lean over to try to bite you, you might want to check my blood sugar. <laughs> my son raised his fist to me, and you have to know me to know how that's not going to happen. And it took me a minute to think, oh my God, he's low. Um, and you, and training people around, people, around him to know that if Aaron became like this it's not Aaron, you have to get some food into him,
2: Mm -hmm.
4: you know, and a a lot of it is the training. Um, We have a philosophy in my house that we will argue about absolutely everything else, but never
2: diabetes. And that is a fundamental law. Yeah. Jennifer?
8: Hi there, I'm I'm new to this group and and so appreciative of it. So thank you, everybody. Um, Julie, thanks for all your suggestions. And I'm similar to Rick in that diabetes came to me late in life. Um, When I was 39, I was diagnosed. The thing I would maybe add on top of what people have said is you know, there's so much fear I find with with diabetes and and I think that's important for family members to understand because what I find with my husband and, and some family members is that that depth of like, you can't know what I'm going through right now and how scary it is to have a low um, is something that's just impossible to understand unless you've been through it. And so I, I think it's really important what people have said about educating family, but and friends, but also just if I'm crappy, maybe sometimes it's okay too. Like we have a burden and and I love being aware of our thoughts, trying to change them, countering with positive. I have a lot of room for growth in that area. But I also think we do have a unique situation and having compassion from our family members, I think is really important. Um, and I, when I, when my husband starts to get irritated by alarms, like I have alarms going off all the time and that's exhausting for me and for him, I'm sure. So just maybe that check-in of, okay, this is difficult. This isn't easy. And, um, and I just think that's, I, I feel like that's important. If we're crabby, I think sometimes we deserve to be, um, And I just, I don't know, just my take on it. I don't want to, I don't want to feel like we can't be or that it's not us. You know, it is diabetes is a little bit Mm -hmm. of us too. So uh, maybe, I don't know, just thought I'd throw that in as something to toss around as well.
2: No, I I really appreciate what you've said, Jennifer. Um,
1: I agree. We are entitled to be crabby now and then. You know, it's not what we want to be all the time, but we have earned the right to be crabby. And so, why not be in that space for 15, 20 minutes, whatever time frame feels good to you or feels like you're releasing something? But you'll find that the longer you stay crabbier, the less relief you get from it. So, you know, it doesn't really represent you, but I totally agree that yes be crabby if that's what you need to do and that's releasing something for you. But we self-correct quite easily.
2: You'll know when you've had enough of being crabby. (laughs) Are there any other comments? I don't see everybody
1: on the board like you do, Tricia, so you'll have to let me know
0: you have three questions that people had submitted beforehand and I'm happy to read them to you and then read them out loud and then you can answer them. Um, the first question was how do you navigate feeling powerless in situations when even we do the same thing over and over and the outcomes are different and sometimes really scary. Um, a friend recently had a diabetic seizure upon waking up with a low blood sugar, which is really scary
1: appreciated that question. Um,
0: This person gets
1: praise for identifying the thought that they want to change. They're recognizing the thought that they're not comfortable with. So that's the first step in making a change. If one keeps choosing an old pattern of fear, then they cannot move ahead effectively. So I would ask if they believe they were capable of re-evaluating the and applying some new clarity to it. But I can't speak to the medical aspects she's referring to. So would refer her to speak to someone else about the the scenario that she's vaguely referring to. Um,
0: Ask that question, if you happen to be on screen, if you wanna follow that up. Okay. Um, Your next question is, um, when my usual routine is out of place, I get really angry. Why is this?
1: Another good question. Um, Again, this person gets points for noticing their old pattern of anger and their desire to change it. Consider that anger is an expression of fear that you will not be able to manage the change. Consider that anger is something that you may want to look at in terms of getting rid of the fear, recognizing it, getting rid of it, so that um, you will not, let's see how I put it. consider that anger is an expression of fear, that you will not be able to manage the change that's in front of you. And is that true? Are you willing to choose a new feeling that is more effective or feels better than that anger when a routine is off? And then it occurred to me that um, maybe she, this person could remember her last holiday or a birthday when they were away from their normal routine. And um, just be aware that it was fun. It was fun to experience change. So in that way, you can turn your old fear of anger around and change it into new excitement. And try this new belief. Everything always works out for me. That mantra feels so much better than going back to your consistent, angry response, because anger doesn't work for any length of time. So I'm hoping that answers, you know, she's getting angry. Why is she getting angry? A fear of change, a fear of not being able to manage the change, when truly there's lots of positive scenarios where this person has managed the change and not realized they've done it so well.
0: Okay, um, the person who submitted that question, if you are on screen, I'd love to give you the opportunity to follow that up or respond. Okay, and your last uh, question that was submitted anonymously. Do you have any strategies to help with addressing self-doubt about ability to perform professionally when confronted with brain fog, particularly in situations where intense focus, concentration, um, creativity, and organization is needed? So I'm guessing this is in a work setting when you have a really bad low and you really don't have the room to have a bad low.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So this person, in my perspective, is obviously very good at the job that she's doing. But the self-doubt probably goes back to a low or maybe a, a high blood sugar experience where she was embarrassed. My strategy for avoiding brain fog is to monitor my own blood sugar every 20 minutes with a scanner or a finger poke for the hour or two before my meeting is taking place in order to assess the trend that I'm on and then give um, a bolus or have sugar tablets handy. So when you're monitoring it, you can see the pattern of where you're going and that is so wonderfully preventative. Um, you'll feel much more confident and in control when you prepare in this way. It is much easier to do when you are on a Zoom meeting, of course, rather than in person. As most people, though, have no difficulty with others who need to do a scan for personal health reasons. In fact, you will often get extra points for managing your T1D so well. So as you're displaying your confidence in your management, other people take note. And more often than not, they know somebody who's diabetic. And they say,
2: "Will you talk to this person for me because you're doing so well. Does that answer the question?
0: So my question actually to everyone is, to what extent have you told, um, you know, people in your work setting that you have type one? So once something like this were to happen, that it's, you know, that no one is surprised or it, it's, it doesn't maybe feel um, not embar- yeah, embarrassing is probably one feeling that you could have if you had a low um, and while you're giving a presentation, but, you know, to what have people Purposely told their coworkers about this just in case, and I know I know you told your kids, Janet, when you were teaching. But I guess more of adults.
6: I'm gonna fess up. This is Yoel, and it was my anonymous question that I emailed in. Hello, everybody, and thank you, Julie. Uh, Yeah. And um, I don't think it's a sense of embarrassment. It's more a sense of um, can I keep operating in this role at a high performance level, when I'm feeling my own sense of self-doubt about whether I'm really on my game the way I want to be on my game. Uh, I do have a continuous glucose monitor. I often have back-to-back five, six hours of meetings, uh, and you're always going up and down. The challenge for me is sometimes more to make sure that I'm eating properly while I'm um, you know, just booked solid in my, in my current life um but um I, and so I, and i am constantly checking my status of my blood sugars uh, perhaps maybe too often i think there's another problem of obsessive mm-hmm. compulsive disorder that comes from people with continuous glucose monitors i don't think i'm there yet but uh, i know some colleagues that might suggest i might be um and um and I think for me the, the question is from other folks who maybe find themselves in these roles where they're in um, mentally demanding spaces where they are in, in in public a lot of time you're analyzing or discussing and uh, and you have these times when your your brain is just not working the way you think it should be either whether you're too high or too low or just um, perhaps it's just from cumulative effect of years of going up and down up and down and you're feeling like am I really functioning the way I can and sh- wish I was or used to be or should be and um, and I and I'm wondering if there's anyone who's in a role that requires mentally demanding space as a type 1D who face this and how, how if they have any thoughts about how they've approached it um, I'm a professional healthcare management consultant that's the space that I'm in and I'm often on the phone with other executives and people that uh, frankly some of them might be very compassionate about me being a type 1D and having challenges and some of them really could give a shit because mm-hmm. they're, they're just on with something else right at that point in time.
2: I have a few ideas, but I don't want to take all the
1: space. So that, just to
6: clarify start. and to see if any collective wisdom on those on the mm-hmm.
1: phone. What I would suggest for you is to, you know, Tweak up what you're doing in a way that for example, if you're on a phone call, it's a long call, can you use a speaker phone and snack in between? and so you're you're multitasking, you're checking your blood sugar, you are feeding you know without that other person being aware that you're even doing that, and you get big kudos for that. It's not easy to do what you're you've described. The other thing is if you have a um, the the choice to take some time off, maybe two or three weeks, and just notice the difference between how well you feel during that time off where you're much more easy about, you know, taking care of your, your food needs and your insulin requirements and all that. So you can make that comparison because living in a high stress job is exhausting. It's debilitating. It's not what I think most people would choose if if they had a choice, but you don't know unless you've made the comparison. It sounds like there's something within your job that really um, is important to you and you enjoy doing it, but you don't want to sacrifice yourself in the process. So having a time frame just to compare, what is it like without this stress behind me, what is it like with the stress? Can I modify the stress or sneak in what I need to do without other people getting annoyed or you know becoming aware of it?
2: Or, I mean, you really have to put yourself first. What's the best choice for you?
0: I'd actually love to hear Adrian Dix answer that question. Yes. given that he's on all the time, you know, like he doesn't have a choice of whether he's being interviewed or not. And I'd love to hear when he goes low, what, you know, I haven't seen him kind of go into brain fog that I could tell, but, you know, gotta wonder.
7: Um, also, I think you have to realize that I have my, both of my kids are in very high pressure jobs where they're on meetings a lot and they are not type one diabetic. However, um, sometimes there's other people who have other reasons that they could go into a brain fog as well and it's not to do with type 1 diabetes and like if they have a child who's really ill that they're worried about or um um just you know or or you have not slept well the night before or you've been sick and you're on the call so I think you've got to realize that it's not like there's many reasons that people can go into a brain fog other than type 1 diabetes and um I, you know and I I I I uh, I did tell colleagues around me that I, about the diabetes as well, but with teaching and you're in front of kids, so you, so you are, but you also have parents sometimes coming in as well, so you are there, but um, just to, but I, I understand this because I've talked to my kids and they're in jobs like that where you're on, on the call and you have to go through that and I can see you're, you're uh, wondering whether you're on there, but um, it sounds like you're doing what you need to do for for keeping at that level and just
2: think that there's other people that could be going through that on the phone calls you're on as well with other things happening in their life too.
6: Yeah, I've also wondered about Adrian Dix.
2: (laughs) I also wonder
4: if it isn't an opportunity to change the culture. I think that, you know, I see my kids and um, their age group are changing the culture. They no, no longer want to work the hours. They want to often work from home. They're not after the big house and the fancy car in the same way perhaps my husband and I were, so that their culture has changed. My son is an aerospace engineer, and he is in high-powered meetings, and he has always been very open about his diagnosis and his requirement to eat. And I believe that he has changed his culture. It changes by minute inches, Mm -hmm. but I think it's an opportunity to express what you need during uh, a meeting to see if you can change the culture for others
0: who may be suffering some stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you.
6: Yeah, you're probably trying to wrap up, Tricia.
0: Yeah, I noticed that it's 7.06 or about six minutes um, after, but um, I wanted to thank Julie um, for being our guest speaker. Um, Again, every time you speak, um, because you've spoken at least two or three times, um, it really does bring my blood pressure. I feel like you're just an intervention in and of itself. Um, and you'll, you know, you know, I'm going to try and invite Adrian Dix here and maybe we can have a session on um, diabetes in the workplace and just, you know, like the different variation of types of jobs, but one being the high pressure job when, you know, you don't have a choice of certain things and you got to be kind of on and what happens. I think that's, um, yeah, I, let me give that a try and see if he'll answer. Because um, he's been to other, you know, events before. Um, sure. That being said, um, you know, I really encourage everyone to give us ideas of what topics you'd want us to host, um, you know, in the next uh, up in the upcoming huddles. Our next huddle actually, those of you who attended last month, it was on navigating clarity um, for those who use Dexcom. And so that session seemed to be so popular that we had other folks who use um, um, Freestyle and Medtronic want to have the same session, but for their sensors than CGM. So um, on December 1st, our next session is going to be on um, looking at um, those types of platforms um, and dashboards for Freestyle um, as well as Medtronic. I'm so excited about that. Um, But again, Julie, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure and I feel so privileged to have you part of the huddle um, because you bring in topics that, you know, are sometimes really hard to talk about um, because I think it's, you know, you have to be exposed and be willing to be vulnerable to share some of these things or acknowledge some of these things. Um, Thanks everyone. Have a great night and um, hope to see you on December 1st if you use Freestyle or Medtronic. All right, bye bye. Thank
1: you,
2: Tricia. A pleasure. Bye bye.